Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Well, welcome to this week's programme with Kiri Kermode and myself, Simon Clark. And this week, I find out from Laura Howe, who's the Marine Officer for the Manx Wildlife Trust, about how recent storms have affected the island's coasts, and particularly affecting the wildlife and the marine life in and out of the waters. Uh, but Kiri, you've been also uh, attending the three-day sheep and wool conference that was uh, here on the Isle of Man recently. Yeah, it was a, re- a really good weekend and it was so much to see and do. And I caught up with some of the visitors and they love the island. They love the Max Lockton and, and they really think it's a special place we have here. And it's amazing how passionate they are about every aspect of the sheep. And you'll hear that in these bits, won't you, where they're, they're trying to you find markets for everything they really are they they see that the sheep as absolute gold which they are and there's so many around the isle of man and in britain that they're smaller they're easier to keep and lots more people are getting involved in the sheep industry and wool it seems to be a more of a byproduct these days but these people are really trying to bring it to the forefront and use it on everyday living and also i find out more from james vickers from complete construction services about a passive house that they've built which has actually won prestigious awards in a uk building magazine So here's this week's Countryside. Manx Radio's Countryside is brought to you by NFU Mutual. But first, the recent storms have caused quite a bit of chaos with knocking trees down and fences around parts of the Isle of Man. But to find out how it affected the marine life around the Isle of Man's shores, I spoke to Marine Officer for the Manx Wildlife Trust, Lara Howe. With the weather, we've had really um, heavy losses on the calf of man with the seal pups this year. What in percentage? It's quite high, isn't it? It is this year, yes. We've estimated that we've probably lost up to about 48% of the seal pups this year. Before the storm hit, before Ophelia hit, we had about 42 seals that had been born. And after the storms, we could only count 22. So there still might be some in hiding somewhere, but it's likely that we've probably lost 20 of the seals this year. What happens to them, do you think? Is is it they get bashed against rocks or things like that, or washed on shores that they're not familiar with? Yeah, it's a lot of that. Sadly, they're not the best of swimmers when they're quite young pups. So therefore, any real sort of stormy conditions, they don't have the ability really to cope with them. And the calf is, the problem with it is it's got very small, shallow beaches with steep, sheer cliffs behind. So when the beaches get inundated with water, there's nowhere really for the pups. They can't move further up the beach, so they obviously have to go into the water. And the problem with that is then they're not strong enough swimmers quite often to be able to cope with the really strong waves and, and currents and things like that. So sadly, they get bashed on rocks or you know broken bones and things like that and, and ultimately they can drown. I suppose when we see seals around the coast of the Isle of Man, a lot of them will be the adult ones which we see in the water which probably spend a lot of the time in the water but it's not the case for the pups by the sound of it. Yeah, um, adult seals will spend probably about 80% of their time in the water actually whereas the pups while they're still being fed by their mum will spend most of their time on dry land yes they'll go into the sea have a bit of a swim about and a paddle and mum will encourage them to learn to swim and, and that kind of thing but generally especially in stormy conditions you wouldn't they wouldn't choose to be in the water you said about how many were born how many do you think you've lost i mean is that how closely you you keep an eye on them around the coastal waters well around the calf yes because we've got um seal volunteers who are there for six weeks monitoring the pups around the isle of man it's much harder to say um because we're not doing fully dedicated surveys although this year we have started to do some island-wide counts but 
we haven't completed the survey yet, so it'd be difficult to say. But we do get the public reporting um, dead seal pups or any dead marine animal washing up, which is really helpful information that builds on that. And I've had a lot of call outs for dead seal pups this last week, understandably, with, with the storm conditions that we've had. So I would say that we've probably lost more around the island this year than we have done for a while again so the calf and the island are mirroring each other it's a, a public perception that they're doing the right thing sometimes when maybe they're not if they see them yeah it's very difficult the pups when they they haul up on a beach will always call for their mum because obviously they want their mum to know where they are and to, they might be a bit hungry maybe and want mum to come and feed them and the call is very it does almost sound like a, a small baby crying and it really does pull on the old heartstrings. But generally, if they are making a lot of noise, that's a really good sign, actually. It means they've got lots of energy and lots of strength available to call out to mum. And the chances are mum's really close by. You might not see her, but she probably is. She's keeping a watchful eye from a distance. And generally, she won't come up to the pups if there are humans or dogs and things around like that. So the best thing, unless the pup is injured, is to leave it there and give it as much space and distance as possible. And mum will come back. Or when the pup's caught its breath and had a rest, it'll, it'll go back out to sea and join mum and swim off to wherever they came from so the mum might be sitting out there just waiting for and shouting and when this this pup will get back in the water and they, they meet up again yeah usually that's what happens quite often obviously this time of year particularly because we've had a lot of stormy weather and things like that the pups are tired they need time to just rest and kind of catch their breath like i said they're still not the best swimmers in the world until they're completely weaned by their mum when they're left to their own devices particularly with the young pups so it's they'll catch up with mum or mum will catch up with them one way or the other given time once they've had a, a bit of a rest. Not just the seals, so I suppose it affects around the coastal waters, these pretty high storms that we had. Does it churn a lot of the sea up and that cause problems for other creatures? Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, we've recently had a report of a Portuguese man of war wash up on, on our shore near Castletown. Have you ever seen one before on the Alaman beaches? <laughs> no, not a Portuguese man of war, so it's quite a rare sighting. And obviously, they've got no ability to move through the water. They're very much reliant on the, the tides moving them or, or the wind, hence why they have that sort of inflatable sail on the, on the top. And they've been reported in other places. I think uh, they've been reported in Ireland as well. So obviously animals that don't have the ability to sort of propel themselves through the water will get caught up in these big winds. But food around the, the coast as well, is that affected if that churns up and they can't get decent food and things? Possibly. It shouldn't affect things too much, I wouldn't have thought. I mean, obviously there's a lot more seaweed being washed up on the beaches and things like that. So if there's animals that might be feeding on seaweed, they might be less available. But generally fish and other species like that shouldn't be too badly affected. Chances are where in the shallower water, where the water gets more churned up, they'll probably move into deeper water, which is less affected by the storm conditions. You've had people course through the summer on the car for man. Was that held up to the storms too, did it well? Yes, we didn't do too bad. We've only lost one tree on the calf through the storms and thankfully it didn't land on any significant buildings or anything like that and everyone seems to have survived okay, minus a few slates off roofs. And if anyone wants to contact, if they need advice, if they see a seal pup and they're a little bit worried, how can they contact you? They can get in touch with myself at the Manx Wildlife Trust office in Peel. It's 844432 and just give us a call or drop me an email at lara at manxwt.org.uk and we'll help in any way we can. The Marine Officer for the Manx Wildlife Trust, Lara Howe, telling us about how the island's marine life has been affected by the recent storms.
Well, in this day and age, we're all trying to save a few pounds on heating costs, particularly in our homes. Well, there's been a passive house built recently on the Isle of Man, which has won a prestigious award in a UK building magazine. To tell me more about it, I spoke to James Vickers from Complete Construction Services. Passive is a building standard. It's a clearly defined standard that a house, when completed, shouldn't use more than 15 kilowatts per square metre per year in heating or cooling costs, which really is practically nothing. And compared to houses that are just thrown up without too much care, can mean a lot, obviously. Yeah, it's about, it's about a tenth of the heat you would require. But Corvallo actually far exceeds the requirements of passive. I mean, it's far below the 15 kilowatts a square metre. What is in it? What keeps people warm? Is it radiators that are put out by heat sources or things like that? Because I've no, heard of them. No, no, there's no heat generated at all or put in the house a heating system. The house doesn't lose very much heat. It's really, really, really well insulated. There's no drafts in the house. It's very, very airtight. It's got really good triple glazed windows. And there's no what you call cold bridges. There's no gaps in the insulation. It's a continuous layer of insulation that goes right round under the floor, over the roof and up the walls. So there are no cold bridges. It hardly loses any heat at all. Still needs a bit of heat coming into the house, but that's generated by you. Your own body creates heat. When you cook, it creates heat. When you wash, when you shower, your dog, your telly on standby, it all creates heat. And if you don't lose very much, we find that suddenly there's enough heat to keep that house warm. I see there's a couple of solar panels on the roof there as well. Yeah, the solar panels are there just to do the hot water. And they'll do 100% of the hot water for probably eight months of the year. In the sort of bleakest months over midwinter, they don't produce enough hot water. So we've got a cylinder with an integral air source heat pump just to make the hot water. And that's 400% efficient. So even that doesn't cost you very much. I'm just thinking now for being in here and thinking uh, I've not gone outside because I've not been well for five days. I'm filling this place with carbon monoxide. <laughs> Am I in danger? No, not at all. Uh, yes, it's really, really airtight, but there is a ventilation system. So it takes all the unclean air from the kitchen, the bathrooms, the moist air, and it takes it out, but it puts it through a heat exchanger before dumping it outside, brings in lovely, fresh, clean air, filters it, puts it through the heat exchanger so it gets all that heat back, well, 90% of the heat back, and then brings fresh, warm air into the house. So actually the living environment in there is really, really clean. Actually, you could say it's cleaner than being outside because the air is filtered. So if you get hay fever, for argument's sake, all the air's gone through a filter, so you get rid of the pollen. I noticed the window sills. You're not going to fit two larger plant pots on the top of them? <laughs> no. No, there are a lot of details you've got to stick to to achieve this passive standard. It's all part of it. Yeah. The point of fact is that you can't have a, a really, really efficient triple glazed window sat on a great big lump of concrete. That would bit defeat the object with a great big cold bridge underneath. So we have to design a lot of things differently. What about the roof? I guess that's a lot of people say that the things are lost through the roof. I presume these chimneys are, are not putting down. I don't think Santa's going to get down them, is he? No, they're purely cosmetic. The roof is a traditional um, slate roof. But underneath that, hidden away underneath the traditional looking chimney stacks and roof slates is a, the same insulation that goes in the walls and marries up with it so there's no cold bridge. And yeah, all the technology is hidden. People be thinking, well, I love the sound of this, not having heating bills and things. But if I was to say to you, look, I'm just dragging a figure out of the air, I don't want to know them off you, but if I said this house maybe costs £300,000 to build in materials, I mean, what would be the difference 
for the, the passive one compared to the other? If we start from the outset and design it correctly for passive, we can build 13% more than traditional building costs. So if a traditional building was going to cost you 300000 it would cost 339 in passive. Not a big difference, is it? Yeah, you would soon recoup that with your heating bills. But maybe this is a chance for people to hear about it, contact you and, and find out more about it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean the great thing about this is that... Um, it's designed on the island. We, f- we fabricate the frames on the island, so it's all made in Balthane. All the materials are bought through Manx companies. It's all Manx labour as just a totally Manx product, really. And that's another thing that's probably surprised a lot of people, including me, because you see a lot of people do internet trolling and now say, oh, yeah, yeah we can get this and from Hong Kong and what have you for a lot cheaper than this. But... Yeah, I mean, winding the clock back a number of years, the only way to achieve houses of this standard was to bring in really expensive kits from Germany or Scandinavia, but you paid an awfully high price premium for those. So now that we're building it, sort of within kicking distance of the same price, it's got to be a good idea. In time-wise, I mean, if somebody wanted one of these houses tomorrow, does it take a lot more time to build them and put them together? No, the designing takes a lot longer because we have to design how it will perform as a passive house. We have to work out how much solar gain there'll be through the windows facing south, how much energy we'll lose from the windows facing north. It's all very, very calculated. It isn't just a a sort of a a guess that it will perform. We know exactly how the house will perform. So the, the planning process does take longer, but when we actually start building, it's a lot quicker. It's timber framed. It's not weather dependent because you can you can put the window the, the frames up in the rain, you can put them up in the wind. So um, yeah, it's a lot bit quicker to build. It's quite a tall house, this one. No, you wouldn't need helicopters or things like that to put it up. Do you? <laughs> no, not at all. All the components are actually two men can lift. What about if somebody wanted to convert their existing one? Is that possible in this way, or does it have to really start from? The base. You can convert an existing house to a standard that they call Enerfit because you can't quite achieve the same standard as passive because there are a couple of things you just can't do, like sort out the insulation gap between the floor and the wall. But you can convert an existing house to just about the same standard. It's not as cost effective because you are effectively building an envelope around the existing house. And in actual fact, they call that a tea cozy. Which I think it's a great word. It's, the funny thing is, I actually did a uh, talk at a school and uh, I was mentioning to the children about a tea cosy and they just all looked blank. They have no idea what a tea cosy was. It could be fairly windy up here some days, I'd imagine, but there's no, no windmills in sight. No, um, I, think that, I think that would be a step too far for the planners, actually. But yeah, you mentioned about the Manx weather and it is really, really, really important that we build a building that is robust and keeps the rain out. We, we get a peculiar rain on the out, very horizontal rain that can find its way through most things. And I think it's absolutely fundamental that every building on the Isle of Man should have a clear cavity to make sure it keeps the rain out. And this does. It is, you know, I, I wouldn't build something if I wasn't absolutely certain it was going to work on the Isle of Man. Well, it is strange. No underfloor heating, no radiators, no fireplace in here. I mean, it's scary in a way until you find out a lot like I have done today from you. Yeah, it's also really quiet, isn't it? Mm. You know, the the triple glazed windows and such solid walls, you just don't hear a thing outside. James Vickers from Complete Construction Services. Manx Radio's Countryside is brought to you by NFU Mutual. 
Well, last week, Kiri, you were at the uh, three-day 7th North Atlantic Native Sheep and Wool Conference, spoke to some of the people of who started it and have kept it going all this time. It's quite a big event for people with sheep and wool, and particularly the Locktons, which uh, are so, you know, local to the Isle of Man, if that makes sense. That's right. We had so many visitors from all around the world to our island, and it was lovely to hear like-minded people giving a speech of where they're from, the Shetlands and Norway and, and different places around the world. And I caught up with UK resident Alice Underwood to hear her story about establishing her business as Sheepfold. I used to be a scientist, but there we go. But when I stopped work because of children, got very much more into the crafts. I have knitted all my life because my grandmother taught me as a a little child. So I've always played around with wool and that just grew and grew and grew. And the joy is that um, in 2005... A friend and I went to the very first ever wool fest, which is held in Cockermouth in Cumbria. Yeah, yeah. And it was their first such event. And Sue and I had been making bags by knitting and felting. And we've always been interested in the rare breeds and the specialist breeds. I'm not a great white sheep fan. I just love the primitive breeds, the different colours, the quirkiness of them. There's just, to me, that's perfect. And people kept stopping us and saying, where did you get your bag from? So we said, we made it. Well, where's your stall? Well, we haven't got a stall. Well, what's your business? Well, we haven't got a business. So we set ourselves a challenge that we were going to set up a business and try and get a stand at Woolfest the following year. Lo and behold, we actually managed it. And so that's how Sheepfold started. We've always within the business had an interest in our native and rare breeds so not all of our work is done with that but a huge amount is and um, we're out there supporting the breeds yeah. advertising the breeds you're a keen member of the rare breed survival trust as well i am yes so you can see where i'm coming from <laughs> but you also keep some manx locksons too so it's nice that connection between the isle of man and our native sheep it is i only started with sheep a couple of years ago was one of those situations the grass was getting long and what was I going to do with it? And it gave me the opportunity to consider all the different breeds and never even having been to the Isle of Man, the ones that grabbed my heart the most were the Manx Locktons. They are the most amazing sheep and you are so lucky to have them here. In fact, I think you should have every single hill covered in this breed because they are beautiful and quirky I'm not a very tall person and they're manageable because they're not a big sheep. I wouldn't be able to turn a big Texel or even the Cheviots would leave Mm -hmm. me standing. So they're the right side, but it's their personalities. Fleece, I adore the colour of the fleece. And even in my little flock, and it is little, I have about four different types of fleece so I can use it for different reasons. I've got long and lustrous, I've got high crimp, I've got sort of short and downy. Really, really interesting how it changes. You're also a really active member in the the Woolly Women of Cumbria Association, (laughs) is that right? (laughs) The mad woolly women. (laughs) Yes, I'm a member of the Wool Clip over in Cumbria, which is a group of really quite diverse 
women. We don't have to be women, but we never have actually had a man apply to join us. So oh. there we go. There's the challenge if there's any men out there thinking it would be a good idea. And we were set up all during, well, just before and then during the foot and mouth disaster we had in 2001. And it was all to do with adding value to wool. And it's still a battle that everybody is fighting. You know, I'm hearing this over on the Isle of Man too. You know, what do we do with our wool? Not only is the value of wool low for everybody, but when we get to the primitive breeds, the rare breeds and the coloured wool, it's deemed to be absolute rubbish. And it isn't. And, you know, that you can't dye it. Yes, you can dye it. You just have to be selective and careful and know what you're doing. So... In fact, some of the research before the wool clip started from British Wool, that was the wool marketing board, they were told emphatically that with Herdwick, which is our local sheep in Cumbria, oh, well, you'll never be able to dye it or use it. Well, we've proved them totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Dyeing Herdwick is fabulous. And I've seen people who have dyed Manx. I haven't tried it myself, but I am going to one day. You just have to take into account what the base colour is. You know, you can get really, really good products. Obviously, you go to these events and you showcase your woolen products. But there's such a diversity of woolen products available and you can do so much with wool. It is absolutely amazing. The cooperative I belong to, there's currently 13 of us. And if I can sort of, in my head, run off the different skills, we have wet felting, We have needle felting, we have knitting, we have crochet, we have upholstery, we have weaving, we have bag making. Um, One of our members does beautiful tufted wool rugs. Another member is a superb dyer. You name it, we can do it. And so, you know, to see the different things you can do with wool, it's an eye-opener. It's just so sad that it was such an important product back years and years ago. It's such an essential part of life and it generates so much money for the UK and Europe at the time. And to see it's come to a product that's, you know, very, very little used. It's heartbreaking. I mean, if you think within London, the Houses of Parliament, where we have the wool sack, and it is a wool sack because that's how money came into the UK. And I'm sure, you know, the Isle of Man will have its own sort of history of wool being an important product so really we need to be pushing back and getting people to use wool again it is just such a brilliant natural material and the conference that we've just recently held it is bringing those people together like-minded people the ideas putting them out there and connecting again and i think it has to be essential surely absolutely i have met some inspirational people here this week and learned so much to take back with me ideas but Hopefully it's a two-way thing and I was talking this morning about how we made the wool clip work and how we could promote our local breed, which is the Herdwicks. And I'd really love that to be able to happen more on the Isle of Man. I know there are individuals and I've met several who are doing their best, but I think as an island... You know, it'd be great if you could really pull together and love and respect your sheep because it's iconic. It is just such a fabulous breed. And increasingly, more and more people are getting interested in sheep and wool and more and more are getting interested in the diversity of sheep, which we have to retain. We never know what diseases are going to come along and, you know, affect things. So the fact I have Manx Locktons over in the UK, you know, if we have another problem over on the mainland, 
I know the sheep over here and vice versa. We need these flocks to be all over the place, but they definitely need to be here because this is the origins. This is where they belong. That was Alice Underwood. I also caught up with local sheep farmer Jim Middleton to chat about the Locktons here on the Isle of Man and also how he sees the future of wool. The story of uh, sheep farming goes back many, many thousands of years and I think that tends to be forgotten sometimes. We tend to see sheep in the field and think it's a a relatively modern phenomenon and uh, part of modern agriculture, which of course it is. But uh, the actual story goes back many thousands of years and uh, they've certainly influenced the way uh, farming has developed in Western Europe. The sheep back then generated a serious amount of wealth from the wool in particular in in the UK and Spain. Certainly in the Middle Ages there was a massive wool industry uh, within uh, the UK and Europe and uh, indeed much of the wealth of those countries uh, was built from the wool trade. Europe has now seemed to sway towards more of the, the meat side of the sheep production rather than the wool. It seems to be a bit more of a byproduct. Will this ever change? much? Well, it's difficult to see how it will change unless um, certain, you know, we can find new products and new uh, purposes for some of the lower grades of wool. The best wool producing countries in the world, like New Zealand and uh, Australia, will always have uh, the best yarns and fibres. So Mm -hmm. for the rest of the world, we have to market and think on our feet and try to find different outlets and different uses for for wools and wool products. Obviously, the talk of the pollutions in the sea recently with plastics. Can you see wool ever taking a a place in modern living to replace some of these plastic products? Well, there has been a lot of work and research done in this area, and it would be nice to think that uh, in the future, Certainly some perhaps keratin-based plastics derived from wool could take the place of uh, some of the plastics which are causing the problems in the oceans today. I mean, keratin is a natural product and breaks down in the um, environment, so therefore it would be less of a pollutant. Now, I'm not a scientist or a chemist, but to me it seems quite logical if there's products that could be made or developed from wool, then that's an area that should be researched more. And how do you see the future of the more of the native breeds? I know there's lots of smallholders and the preserving the breeds. Do they still have their place in the modern-day farming world? Well, I, it'd be nice to think they do, because uh, they've been around for such a long time, and most of the rare breeds, certainly in this country, as you'll be aware, are often island-based breeds. Their roots have been there, that's where they were developed or that's where they, you know, they've been for many, many years. Now, finding economic value in them is not always easy yeah. and be it for meat, fibre or anything else, but they have an important story and uh, they have, have genetics which would be a shame to lose. So I think you know, we should definitely endeavour to try to keep as many of them as we can. I liked your quote before, the wool check once paid a farmer's rent. You know, a two and a half thousand acre farmer and it was paid by the wool check. Will this day ever come back? Well, it'd be nice to think so, but as I say, I think it's down to what purposes we find for the wool now. Yeah, I mean, that was something that my father used to often mention. The wool check used to pay the rent and that would be back in the, uh, probably back in the 30s and 40s. And that was from hill sheep, so that's from, like black-faced sheep. Well, um, it would take a lot of black-faced sheep now to pay the rent, <laughs> wouldn't it? That was Jim Middleton, local sheep farmer. Interesting, Jim talking there about you know how valuable uh, the wool was in its time you know wasn't it you know paying for rents and things like that it's absolutely incredible how far it has come how how adrift it is and disconnected it has become really and it's nice to see people trying to work together to bring wool back to the forefront it's a natural product there's so many sheep in britain and in the isle of man it's such a shame to not get more out of the, the product itself I see that they're trying to use wool as an alternative to some of these plastics and new modern materials that are non-biodegradable. So it'll be really interesting to see the future of it. 
Manx Radio's Countryside is brought to you by NFU Mutual. Well, there we are. It's not just affecting trees on the Isle of Man. The uh, marine life, which has been affected by the storms of late here around the coastal waters. And also, uh, James Vickers, tell me about that wonderful passive house that won the awards in that uh, UK building magazine. And, of course, the Sheep Conference. Uh, what a pleasure it was to have it held for three days here on the Isle of Man. But we'll have to leave it there for this week's Countryside. We're back next week with more. So from me, Simon Clark. And me, Kerry Kermit. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click Shaw.com. Love being sure. Terms and conditions apply.